So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests, and, when people send them in, I'll answer listener questions. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons receive perks like getting to listen to the show a whole week early. And if you're not one already, you can check out all the other perks and exclusive content over at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Alright, last week was the one-year anniversary show, and I'm very happy to say we're kicking off year two with an interview I'm very excited about. David C. Smith is an author whose career began in the 1970s during the second wave of sword and sorcery, and he still writes to this very day. Mostly known for his sword and sorcery or heroic fantasy works like Oron and the Red Sonja series he co-authored with Richard L. Tierney, David also writes horror and suspense novels, and like yours truly, he loves to talk, which is partly why this interview has been split into two episodes. The rest of the responsibility for that is on me, <laughs> of course, not only for my big mouth, but because there was just so much interesting stuff to discuss with David, covering decades of literary history and his development as an author. When you have such a great resource as David on the other side of the microphone, you don't want to be too broad, too general, you know? So I will encourage anybody who finds themselves hearing a lot of unfamiliar names to treat this as I did an opportunity to learn about all kinds of new-to-you authors or publishers to check out after the interview is over. In this first half, we discuss how the 60s and 70s fanzine community played a crucial role in getting David's career going, how his first novel, Oron, came to be, what it might be like trying to encourage readers of the romance genre over to sword and sorcery, and a whole lot more. Okay, let's go hear what David had to say. And here we are with David. Hey, David. Hi. Uh, hi, Oliver. How, how are you? Doing well. I've really enjoyed chatting with you before we press record. I can only think it will get better <laughs> as we go along. <laughs> we're just, we're, we're both talkers, so this is going to go fine, I think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so why not start at the beginning, eh? What got you, you know, on the road of being a writer and what brought you to Sword and Sorcery specifically? I actually started out wanting to go into cinema, wanting to make movies, believe it or not. And um, I had really gotten interested in in silent movies, of all things. You know, this is back when good luck finding any silent movies on TV, you know, or the library or anything. But I got interested in those, and I got interested in, the, in, in movie making. My father, for my 16th birthday, got me a little Kodak Super 8 millimeter camera. So I actually made some some movies in, in high school, and there was a Kodak contest in 1969, I think, 69-70. And, and my friends and I, well, I got a couple of awards for those. We made a Western, believe it or not, because <laughs> uh, friends of mine, their, their father, she was, where, where I lived, there was there were some wealthy people that lived way out in the, had these farms or estates. 
and he played polo and hated polo ponies. So we actually got some shots of my friends wearing cowboy hats and, and being on horses. Um, <laughs> and we did a version of the mummy, which was not very good at all. I was the mummy and I was, I was a little bit too pudgy in high school to be, to be a mummy. Um, but I, I decided I wanted to go in, into filmmaking. I really loved filmmaking. And so my first stories were built that way. Um, I didn't know what a script looked like, but I knew how to build scenes and so on because we pick it up by osmosis, of course, you know, from reading and watching movies and stuff. But what happened was that I went to Ohio State for a year. They had just started their cinema program there. And I remember the, the professor's name, Wayne Schuth was his name. And he's really a good guy. He was pulling it together. But he said, you know, if you really want to make commercial films, you need to be in New York or you need to be in California. Now, I'm from Youngstown, Ohio, you know. Actually, I'm from Liberty Township, Ohio, which is semi-rural. <laughs> and here I am at Ohio State talking about this stuff. So I said, oh, man, I don't know if, if, you know, I don't have money or whatever to get to those places. And at the same time, I'm, I was writing for English classes, and my English prof said, you write really well. Have you thought of being an English major? Well, not until that moment, I hadn't. So uh, I switched my major to English, concentrated on that. Now, of course, I've been reading science fiction and fantasy short stories and novels since I was in junior high school, even before that, you know. And I had discovered the Conan stories in the Lancer editions with the, with the Rosetta covers, you know. And those things, those, those were incredible. In fact, the way I discovered them was, I don't know if you've ever heard of a magazine called Castle of Frankenstein. It was it was kind of like the poor cousin of famous monsters of Filmland. Oh, there's a great story about this. It was put <laughs> together by some guy and his mother in up in New York. What's the name of this guy? And they had it published in Canada. And this thing was it was small type. It was all kinds of photos. It was I mean rather than having large print and seeing the same stills over and over again, like in Ackerman's magazine, they were reprinting articles from, you know, Cahiers du Cinema in France talking about French weird, you know, oh, this, oh, this, it was incredible. It was incredible, you know. Cool, yeah, you got the new wave, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff. And, and he's talking about eyes without a face and <laughs> all these fascinating avant-garde movies along with classics like, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Frankenstein and stuff. This thing was incredible. It's like a gold mine. And if, if you love, you know, bizarre stuff, it's just, you know, you're just soaking this stuff up. I sure was. So fun fact, you can cut this out, but the guy who ran the magazine became the model for the character in Psycho who kills the Janet Lee character in Psycho. Oh, Jesus. Uh, Norman Bates. <laughs> <laughs> Norman Bates. <laughs> Rob, I guess Robert Block used to come into town into New York once in a while. Then Carter was part of the, this little group of people who would get together once in a while and have dinner. And this is honest to Christ truth. And this guy was so uh, Calvin Beck. Look up sometime Calvin T. Beck. Okay. And he was kind of an odd duck, and he was the the editor, and he lived with his mother, and she apparently got like henpecked him or controlled him or whatever. And I guess that got the the, the Motors movie for Block when you heard about this guy. Incredible how, how things intersect, you know, and, and whatever. But in any event, yeah, so he, so here I am 
also subscribing to and reading Armor magazine and the Conan stuff. I read Lord of the Rings, and, and I, I never cared for Lord of the Rings that much. Um, and I've been giving this some thought. And, you know, it's kind of like the, the, the farther you get out from the center into shires and dragons and talking trees and stuff, I mean, that's legitimate fantasy. But what I learned about myself was that what I liked about Howard is that that's quasi-historical. And so it's more realistic, you know, quote-unquote. Mm. And that's the stuff I gravitate toward. So, and that's kind of my definition of sword and sorcery, too, is it's got that grounding there, you know, in that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I use that word exactly myself when I talk about it. It's this, really? this grounding that creates a kind of fun contrast with the weird elements so that the special things feel special. Yes. Whereas the more fantastic elements you add to something, I'm not saying I've never enjoyed anything with a lot of fantasy, you know, right. uh, hoopla charging around. But yeah, I find it becomes less special and I become less engaged. And so that's partly why I've been so drawn to a lot of sword and sorcery. But, you know, yeah. That's very well put. Because, see, if you have everything, I think it's kind of where the horror and terror stuff works in sword and sorcery, too. If you have the day going along just as it usually does, whether you're in Equilonia or in Chicago or, and then something outlandish or fantastic happens, now you're shocked, you know, you pulled into it. I mean, that's, there's some emotional content there, you know, and it's, it's, way out of what you expected hmm. whereas if your world is filled with dragons talking trees and little elves and everything it's, it's just as you said so that's why i like sword and sorcery and you can build that that gothic element that mystery or tension whatever there and then when this thing erupts as i feel like, I sound like i'm plugging my book but it's kind of like you either live or you die i mean that's the point of sword and sorcery is that you confront yeah. this stuff and you survive you get to continue living and to me, that's the point of sword and sorcery. You know, that's that's what Howard developed. And there it is right there. So you, you confront this, this element or this force or whatever it is, and you win, you know, even if you have your ear half chewed off or something. Yeah. And you're there for another day, and you really take a big gulp of air, and you appreciate the fact that you're still alive. And to me, that's sword and sorcery. And then what distinguishes it from, like, detective fiction or war stories or police stories or whatever, is that it's very frank about that element of horror or the fantastic, mm -hmm. which we know is always there. All of us walk, we know that's there somewhere in life. And these stories come right out and say it. Say, yeah, here it is. And it's going to take this shape. It's going to be this monster or this, you know, whatever the development might be. There's going to be an elephant in that tower, yeah, <laughs> so to speak. Exactly right. Exactly right. And it's, you know, it's the Chekhov thing, you know, where, you know, you know, if there's an elephant in the tower, you got to run the elephant. The gun <laughs> is in, is hanging over the mantelpiece. You know, you know, you got to use the gun. So. But maybe not an elephant in every tower, because then you're back in high fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And you have a whole bunch of elephants in rooms and they teach a class in how to do sorcery or something. Now you're way on it. Yeah, exactly. Now I just want to write a story about a city of elephants and towers. I have to have a think about that. But uh... <laughs> you go, go, go for it, go for it. You never, you know, you sit down, you start typing, you, you talk to yourself, and you're there. <laughs> Although we say all this, I mean, I, I do occasionally find myself in the funny position of envying people who have a broader palette of enjoyment. You know, of course, there are many SNS fans who love Tolkien. Oh yeah, um, yeah. and I don't dislike him. I actually have been enjoying rereading The Hobbit recently. Um, oh. uh, my partner loves it. We've been rereading it together. But the main saga, I do find, I still kind of bounce off it. I might give it another shot someday. But yeah, when it, it still it, it triggers my my personal boundary of when everything's special, nothing is. Yeah, that's so well put. 
exactly. When everything is special, then nothing is exactly. That is so well put. And that's, um, which I thought of that, because that, that explains perfectly. It really does. And you want to hold that then in reserve. And then when it comes out with a punch or with an explosion or a roar or whatever, mm. now you're really in the middle of something. There it is. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering, in the back of your short story collection, Tales of a Tuma, available now, you mentioned how... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, oh, you read, you read that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I was very uh, fortunate. Um, a friend from actually the Whetstone Tavern Discord had a whole bunch of your books, uh, and and he was like, "Hey, I can ship them to you, so you can oh. you know read through them more quickly." And and you know stuff. And I was like, "Oh, oh my thank god! You. Oh my god! Was it Seth by any chance? It, it's was it Seth?" Uh, no. Uh, username uh, Dragoon Chuck. Uh, I believe his name is Chuck. Uh, pardon me, Chuck, if I'm oh, messing okay. that up. No, see, I have a fan. I, I have fans. So. Oh yeah, no. I mean, oh. I, I bet you're thinking of Seth Lindbergh, which honestly uh, plausible, uh, <laughs> but no, it was not him. Uh, so yeah, Tales of Atuma. You have what I really appreciated both as a reader and as an interviewer. <laughs> the interview in the back uh, of the book. Yes. And in that interview, you mention how the 70s fanzine community was a big part of your development as a writer. Yeah. Could you please tell us all about that community and your part in it? That was very much an element of the, the 70s. The late 60s, I'm sure, especially the 70s. This was the, maybe not the only way, but, but the way to communicate in print. For those of us who, who were involved in this now everyone knew about armor magazine out of philadelphia somehow or other there or maybe i don't know maybe again in space and time maybe lynn carter mentioned some of these fanzines there was one called herb dumb erb dumb about edgar rice burroughs i subscribed to that for a while then what were some of the others the the, the main one was um was space and time which Gordon Linsner in New York, he's still around yet, Gordon Linsner in New York put out. And I started subscribing in probably like the early 1970s, maybe like, no, like early 1970, maybe. And this thing was kind of like the, the weird tales of the era in, in my mind. I mean, he was very generous. He published all kinds of stuff, science fiction as well as fantasy, poetry. He introduced new young artists and everyone. And it was in the letter columns of, of these fanzines that people got to talking and found out about each other. So I submitted to Space and Time, and Gordon was generous with me. He liked my writing, and I would send him something to just about like publish it. You know, I tried to do my best work. Half of what he sent him was horror. Half of what he sent him turned out to be like fantasy, sword and sorcery fantasy. There's one called The Diversifier, done by some brothers out in California. I sold them a couple. There is one called the Literary Magazine of Fantasy and Terror, which was done by Jessica Amanda Salmonson. Now, you know, she's she's a trans person, and this this predated that, you know. What was the one out of San, there's one out of San Francisco, oh, done by Dale Donaldson. Hmm. And his deal was that he wouldn't publish a magazine and then saddle staple it or anything. He would print stories on triple-punched colored paper and fold them in an envelope and mail them to you so you can keep them in a binder. And that was his idea of, of you know, keeping... Oh, I love it. Isn't that wild? So there was a ton of imagination in people doing these things. There was one that didn't print fiction. This is really like a, a, a talk board or whatever of the period. The guy, I forget his name, but it was just an ongoing conversation. And he would, I think it was mimeographed, but people would write letters and just talk back and forth. <laughs> so you get a letter from somebody, I don't know, somebody in Poughkeepsie, right? 
they're talking about Tolkien, or they might be talking about something in science fiction, or it might go off on a tangent and talk about something topical, current events or something. This is the Vietnam War era, so there's right. a bit of that. And then he would print those letters. And then I think at the back of the book, there, well, there would be replies to people from previous letters. And some of this stuff would get into philosophy and stuff. Now, I graduated from college, and I was rather bright. You know, these ideas fascinated me. I don't think I ever did send them a, a, a letter, but it's kind of like message boards today. So you would yeah. have, you know, the, you, you would publish the, the letter from the person and then a reply and then something else and go on to another topic. And they just ran along like a scroll, you know, as <laughs> the magazine. So there was tons of ingenuity and, and all kinds of stuff going on there. Was a fanzine your very first sale? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was to uh, Space and Time. When Linsner bought it, the story was called, it's very politically incorrect, the Apache Curse, Apache with an apostrophe, um, and sit in the Old West and about this racist old, old uh, you know, pioneer or, or cowboy or whatever who killed um, uh, Apaches just because he hated them, you know. Mm-hmm. And he gets his comeuppance, you know, at, at the end. So, yeah, in fact, once I started writing short stories, I read somewhere. I used to read Writer's Digest all the time. And someone said, boy, that first that first rejection slip from a from a publication. It really hurts. You know, the things you got to. Yeah. So I said, I'm going to get this out of the way immediately. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote a very bad story called The, the Caves of Living Rock. And, and it's about a barbarian who goes into a cave, and sure enough, it's made of living rock, which tries to compress him, and somehow he gets out. Just got awful. But, you know, I think not quite as bad as some of the Lynn Carter Spring to Camp ripoffs. They were nah. fantastic. So, <laughs> so I said it's a fantastic. And sure enough, Ted White turns a sick right around. We started to reject him, blah, blah, blah. And, and I pinned that thing up on the wall. It's like, Fine. Now I've, I've got past that barrier, you know. So, so that was my first rejection letter, and, and after that, I just started writing. But most of the places I submitted to, if they didn't publish the story, they were very kind about declining it. You know, they had a good reason for. It. I just wasn't their kind of writer or something. So you kind of learn to do that, and, and you build a little bit of a shell. And, don't take it and I'm guessing the feedback you got in some of those rejections also shaped your development as a writer. You know, like that's such a valuable thing. It did, and that stuff would really come through, like, the letter sections. Um, someone, you know, I'd get a short story published, Me or Anyone, and then um, the next issue of the fanzine, there would be the, you know, David Smith's story was very good, but I don't understand why he did this, you know, or John, you know, whatever story. And so, I mean, I'm just, I'm picking something up at random here, but you, you get feedback. Wait, I'm I'm sorry. They published the rejection letters. Oh no 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 no. I would I would publish a story. No, I'm being unclear. I, I oh, I misunderstood. Story. Sorry. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's no, intense. I'm, no, I'm, I'm being unclear. <laughs> so, space and time would publish, and then the next issue, people would write it in and say, "Boy, I really like this story. You know, it worked for me." Or someone would say, "It kind of worked, but I didn't." really understand this part or, you know, whatever it might be. But then in the letters column, just like in Weird Tales, you know, back in the mm-hmm. 30s, like, boy, Robert E. Howard really packs a punch, or I'm so tired of Conan the Chipmunk or something. And that's how you got feedback. Yeah. 
that's what the fanzines were so good for. I mean, they, they really were. So, and this went on for years. I when I sold Oron, the novel Oron, seventy. 78 and 78 I kind of moved away from the fanzines then I still had some stacked up that were printed later but I, I was able to start writing sword and sorcery books for zebra books so that's what mm -hmm. I did and I didn't go back to the fanzines then which is kind of too bad because it's such a great great little market but that kind of gets into what I was mentioning before we went on the air there was this whole period there in the late 70s and early 80s where you did have all this talent kind of concentrated around somewhat in the fanzines and then in, in publishing. And it was starting to do very interesting things with adventure fantasy, sword and sorcery, action fantasy. And then it kind of went nowhere. You know, mm. publishing changed and moved into, you know, more feminist fantasy and, and Tolkien type stuff and everything. And my only complaint was that why isn't there room for everybody? I mean, some of us still want to explore what we can do with sword and sorcery. And that didn't really happen. You know, to some degree, you know, you had like the Black Company and stuff like that. But there seemed to be some momentum there and it dissipated. Well, you know, I do want to come back to that, actually, and get your 10 cents on sure, when sure. sort of the air got let out of the balloon a bit in the 80s. Yeah. But before we get there, mm -hmm. I have a couple other things I'd love to ask you about. I mean, one, I just would love to run something by you. Oh, yeah. I've mentioned to you before we started recording that I've been chatting with a lot of other people about, like, you know, what can we do that's proactive rather than just having the same sort of complaints mm -hmm. about, oh, mm -hmm. we wish more people read this stuff. And one thing that came up that was kind of interesting was, in fact, zines, because we have noticed, uh, me and these people have been chatting, Certain people in the indie role-playing game community have had great success giving away or, or even selling short adventures in that format, always with information on how to find the publisher online at the end of the adventure, right? And oh, interesting. we were thinking, what if we did something similar? Or what if we encourage others to do something similar where perhaps a very short, like 1,500, 2,000 words, you know, mm -hmm. a very short sword and sorcery short story could be published as a zine, uh, followed by like a body of links at the back of like, hey, did you dig this? Well, check out Sword and Sorcery in these various corners, you know, get into it. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Like, That's good marketing. No, that, that's good marketing. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good idea. That'd be a good tool. I, I think so. Who would the audience be? Would it be expansive enough to reach people? We just just give it away. You know, is what I'm thinking. Cons. Are yeah, it feels like something you would you would print cheaply on mass, give away at conventions. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Include yeah, maybe yeah. in the back of other stuff. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's it's a good idea to to build the audience. I I know a little bit of when I was looking at the at the message board on what's it called? Search Discord. The uh, Whetstone Tavern. I'm so old. Yeah, Discord. I'm so old. Uh, uh -huh. <laughs> Discord. <laughs> that they were saying how to reach out to a broader audience for sword and sorcery. And what occurred, a couple of things occurred to me. First of all, I distinguish sword and sorcery from, from heroic fantasy. Mm. And there's a lot of overlap, of course. But characters in heroic fantasy are motivated by something other than, than what motivates you know the survival instinct of people in, in sword and sorcery. The other thing is that given the... the Sword and sorcery kind of has, it's kind of like raw meat and kind of has some teeth to it. Does that or does that not limit its audience? Because some of the, the people online were saying, what if we try to attra attract readers of romance? Yes. And it's far and away the largest reading audience for fiction in this country. And I mentioned it to my wife, and she doesn't read a lot of romance, but she reads a lot of mysteries and stuff like that. 
she's like, I don't know. She she read my books when she was in college. She liked them well enough. Different time, different place, maybe. You know, it'd be worth trying. If you played up the, I want to say the romance angle, the heart interest or something. Mm -hmm. Is it still then sword and sorcery or is it more heroic fantasy? It's okay if it's heroic fantasy. If you want to go in that direction, what would the romance element be? If it's if it's two strong characters building something, yeah, these two strong characters, male or female or whoever, broaden the audience, you know, have, oh, yeah. have a couple of whatever. But now is it something different from sword and sorcery, or is it you know you kind of? Well, I I think about because um, I, I thought my mind as I mentioned before we started recording, I'm I'm currently outlining a story that's kind of riffing off it. So people of the black mm-hmm. circle, which I, I'm sure some people who know me are tired of me mentioning lately, <laughs> uh, but yes, people of the black circle. For listener, if you're not familiar, it's a classic novella length Conan story, which among other elements in it, it there is a sort of you know, uh, they snark at each other until they want to kiss each other, kind of, you know, romance virgins over it between Conan and uh, the Devi Yasmina, princess of Vendaya, which is basically India, as I remember it. And by the end of the story, spoiler, sorry, lots of great stuff has happened, you know, please still read the story. But by the end, they kind of part in a moment of mutual respect, which I really enjoyed. Yep. But I feel like the romance version would be perhaps instead of him, you know, being like, well, I've got my responsibilities to my, you know, my men. There's driven me through this whole thing and her being like, well, I've got my responsibilities to my kingdom and tradition means I can't marry you. I could have you as a harem guy. And he's like, I don't know about that. <laughs> I, you know, instead of them making the decision to prioritize a responsibility to others over their personal desires, I feel like you could make it a romance story by just flipping it and having them both go, you know what, actually, screw my kingdom. Yeah, screw my my men. They'll be fine. <laughs> I save them. That's whatever mission accomplished and have them go off to build a life together and have further adventures boom romance you have a happily ever and, uh, after at the end you know that's good they could do that and in fact if you follow them then after that sunset and follow them to the next sunrise or something you know yeah. maybe people in her in her kingdom would come after and say no you have to do this or her men would come and say no you gotta do this and there's all kinds of interesting storylines you could then follow and would it cause conflict for them it's character 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 mm-hmm. that's that's what i try to emphasize so much and if you do that in the story you kind of can't go wrong well yeah and i mean look and look all i did was was flip one thing at the end exact same story otherwise yes so would you say that's not sword and sorcery because they wind up together at the end i don't think so <laughs> no and it, ex- and it expands sword and sorcery and you can still have the tough guy there's still so many readers out there that, that want the tough guy alpha male character and i i, I understand this fiction was born in the Great Depression. That's that's a constant for a lot of readers. You, you know, you want to see that that type of virile figure succeed no matter what. Detective mm-hmm. stories, western, sword and sorcery, whatever. But if you don't do it right, it's just one-dimensional silliness. Yep. There's no irony. There's no sense of humor, and it's like that's what you need for drama. That's what you need for character. You know, I try to make sure every one of my stories have a little element of humor. Might be very dark humor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but that's why that's why we've had funny characters in plays since the beginning of time. Well, you got to have that little relief valve, you know, and then you come back and you amp it up, and you have the relief valve, and you come back and amp it up. You know, that's that's, that's, that's a drama there. So. Well, absolutely, I agree, and I I feel like um, 
I could go down this avenue with you for much further. Maybe we'll come back to it at the end. Sure, sure. But uh, I, ha I have this Word file I worked on very hard, gosh darn it, and I've got to work through these questions in order or my boss will get mad at me. <laughs> no, please, please do. I'm, see, I'm jabbering away here. No, no, no. no. You're saying wonderful stuff. I, just, I love it. I just want to try and create a narrative in the interview. But that's me being a control freak. Also, it's very funny I say I have this uh, Word file worked out. I feel decent about all my questions that I've got for you here, David, but I won't lie. My third question, yeah. I never quite got it down to anything more specific than like, tell me about the second wave of sword and sorcery. It sounds great. Because <laughs> like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> so if I can kind of, if I can kind of own that vagueness and, and make it a little more answerable for you, then like, please tell me about an entire decade of publishing. Um, because I will say for someone like myself who is, you know, trying to publish now, it can be a bit funny to look back and, and be studying, you know, great authors from the first and second waves of sword and sorcery and be looking to say the second wave, which you got to be a part of and, and be thinking, God, there was a mid list in publishing once. Oh, that sounds nice. You know, and I'm not, I don't think it was ever easy to make a living at it, but it seems more possible. God bless you. Cause that's, that's what happened with publishing. They got rid of the mid list. That's, that's, that's what it was. That's how I got in. You had that mid list there yeah, this is... and they would take a chance on, on new writers, you know, and I came out of the fanzines and, you know, you had, an, I, I was extremely lucky with this. You know, I, I was in briefly in the esoteric order of Dagon, the Lovecraft APA, because, how, how, oh, because Dirk Mozik, oh, this, this is very strange. You're going to have to cut this out. This is very strange. I graduated college. I swear to Christ, this is what happened. I graduated college and total nerd that I am. On rainy Sundays, I used to go to the stacks of the library of Youngstown State University, where I graduated. And they had a great library for this little mid-sized college in a steel town. They had the best library. I guess it had been endowed by people who made their fortunes in steel, you know. Mm. And they had so many wonderful things there. And some of the stuff, I, I like ancient history, not, you know, I'm intrigued by ancient, really ancient history and early civilizations. So... Some of the books they had there were, were had been published like in the in the teens of the previous century, and they were someone had had very carefully drawn the cuneiforms of of Sumerian, <laughs> I know, uh, tablets, and then they had transliterated those, so you would get all these Sumerian symbols. So you might get Ug, Ia. Which you know, they, it almost seems like they must have spoken almost like pigeon or something, which I'm sure they didn't. And they never did translate them. You know, they were still working on Sumerian dictionaries and stuff back then. And I'm reading this thing, Nagur, Ia, you know, mm -hmm. um, all these weird syllables that sounded to me like the names of Lovecraft monsters. You know. <laughs> like the great old ones or something. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it can't be. Oh, so this is, I mean, this, this is what it was like back then. Hmm. This kind of spontaneous, you just start bouncing things around. It was, it was very interesting. But you did in slow motion, long distance, because you had to write the right letter. So I wrote a letter to, I think, Stuart David Schiff was at Whispers then. And I said, look what I found. Would this be of any interest to you? And I had this long list of these, these syllables that sounded like Lovecraft monsters. And he said, I can't use it, but I'm going to pass it along to a guy named Dirk Mozig, who teaches psychology, heard the name of psychology at Georgia Southwestern University, way the hell down. And it was a few miles from Plains, Georgia, which is where Jimmy Carter was from. 
So I get, I soon get a letter from Dirk Mosey. He says, this is fantastic stuff. He thought there might be something there. You, you never know, you know. So through interlibrary loans with other libraries, he's a PhD, so he could order. He tried to track down if there was any, like this book or some other book from this earlier period that might have been in, in the library of Providence. Hmm. And maybe Lovecraft had come across or whatever. And he kind of nailed one down. It was a possibility. We, we never really were able to ascertain that, you know. But it was, it was a goofy idea, but we followed it and, and stuff. So the result of this was that he and I started communicating back and forth. And he, he was a great guy. He was awfully great guy. Really, really a good guy. I went down to visit him, in fact, one time at his home when he was still in Georgia down there. Because I, after call, I would just hit the road and go visit people, I guess, you know. So uh, he mentioned the esoteric order of Dagon. You ever think about joining this? I don't know much about Lovecraft. I, mean, I like Lovecraft. I'm, not, I'm kind of a Howard guy. But I joined it, and um, he said the editor, what they call him, the editor-in-chief, anyway, the editor of, of the EOD then, was Roger Bryant, a guy who lived in Akron, Ohio. Well, I was still out of college, living in my parents' house in, in Liberty Township. So I got a hold of Roger Bryant, and... So I'd go there and hang out with him and, and his girlfriend and some of his buddies. And, and he knew everybody in science fiction and fantasy. Roger mm. was a wealth of information. He was a true fan and truly involved in fandom. I don't feel I ever really was. I was nervous about getting involved in fandom. I, didn't, I had to make a living and work for a job and, you know, lousy job and everything. What happened was that a, a couple of things. First of all, I decided, because I was turning out a fanzine, I decided to write a, a true Lovecraft pastiche. Not a, not fan like fan fiction, you know. Scott Oden says stuff like Red Sonja or whatever. Those books are basically kind of fan fiction because we're not mm-hmm. trying to write them in Howard style, you know. We're, we're writing in his spirit. But a true pastiche, you'd be trying to write in the style of Robert E. Howard of H.P. Lovecraft. So I did that, and I called it what I call it, the Sign of Cthulhu because there was a Cthul or something cuneiform. And, of course, the scientist involved is Dr. Derek Musag or something. I don't know, you know. And, of course, the monster comes crawling through the window at the end, and it was a true Lovecraft pastiche. And there's slime Mm -hmm. on the floor afterwards or something. I don't know. (laughs) And it was a hoot. You know, we did it for fun. And uh, so I I got to meet him then when uh, they used, I guess maybe they still do MinCons or Oktoberfest up in Minneapolis, St. Paul. There's a whole host. There was at that time a lot of fans up there in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I, I'm new to all this. I'm just this nerd who just got out of college and was trying to write short stories. But in the course of discussing things with, with Dirk, I said, I've written this novel called Oron. It's kind of sword and sorcery. And it's it follows this heroic arc, like one of the old Greek heroes or something. You know, that was my take on it. Let me read it. We didn't like sword and sorcery at all. You know, he, he was... <laughs> intellectual and like poetry and Lovecraft and everything. We like my story. I think because it was a downer, you know, <laughs> it's like it doesn't do what these stories usually do. So, so he said, can I send it to Dick, to Richard L. Tierney? He lives in, in St. Paul, uh, Minneapolis. Oh, okay. And he said, yeah. Um, I had already ordered from Harry uh, Morris Jr. Dick's first novel, The Winds of Czar. Because again, fanzine, fans and fanzines all kind of cross-pollinate. So believe it or not, I went with Roger Bryant up to the to the MinCon. This would have been in, I guess, October of 75. 
I dared to leave my safe space and actually went on the road and met these people. And Dirk was there. And as I get out of the car with Roger, Dick Tierney is there. He's got Orin, the Orin manuscript. And I had the Winds of Tsar. And he said, I really like your story. I said, well, I really like your story. And he asked if he could send Oron to a friend of his who'd just gone to New York to try to be a literary agent. And that was Kirby McCauley. They'd been friends for years in the Twin Cities. Well, Kirby, of course, ended up being Stephen King's agent and all this stuff. But he did place Oron eventually. And I've now completely forgotten why I got on this track. Oh, we, I had given you a fairly vague question. I was just saying, you know, it's funny. All my other questions are very specific, but my third one, I, I still have kind of written, you know, the Midlist. What was that like? Because <laughs> yeah. it's interesting to read about publishing back then and read about contracts like, you know, a new author given three books. Publishers figured, well, maybe he'll get it, the, the knack of novels by the third one. But that doesn't exist anymore. It was, yeah, it was, in, in retrospect, it may seem to me more free and easy than it actually was. It was unusual for me to have gotten that contract, you know, the way that I did. Mm. But there were writers, you know, I'm going to mention Andy Offit, you know, because what happened was that, like, you had people in space and time and you had people in diversifier and whatever. And I didn't know, but it makes perfect sense that, that some of the pros were paying attention to these things. Mm -hmm. And once in a while, someone would break out or try to break out or whatever. Now, we're talking very specifically here about the mid to late 70s, this, this very specific little time here, which was, to my mind, quite different from, from the 60s and early 70s, when there's a ton of schlock that was published, you know, by publishers. And, you know, you had the Gore series and you had, <laughs> there were so many one-offs that were done. So many one-offs that were done. There were some good ones. There was one called Cabin's World or something by a guy named David Mason, and that one was pretty good. But publishers would look at this stuff I'm sure you had to have an agent. I didn't have an agent. When I tried to sell Oron, I tried, I never tried Doubleday, and I don't have an explanation for that. I should have sent it to Doubleday. Hmm. I tried Avon. I tried, I forget them. Somewhere I have the list. I still have my old notebook where I kept track of these things. But, you know, I would type the manuscript. This is like a 500 and some page manuscript, and it's in a stationary box. I don't, I don't even think they have stationary boxes anymore, but you'd buy Southworth paper, which is really good. 20 pound bond paper that professional writers used, you know, oh, wow. type it up on that thing on my Smith Corona or this old Remington from 1925 that I bought for this song. So I felt like a real pulp writer with this cast iron uh, <laughs> typewriter. I still have it. I still have it. Wrap it, you know, put in a letter asking someone to read it. This is my novel. Would, would you care? And, and you cut apart a brown grocery bag and wrap that around the box with the manuscript and address it. And then after a while, it would come back with a rejection letter. And that's the way you tried to sell novels back then, if you didn't have an agent. And I did that so many times. Oh, God, that's so antiquated now. I mean, yes and no. I mean, you know, there's still query letters and sending stuff out to publishers. And oh, yeah. And trying to get an agent if you think that can help you. Yeah. I am happy to see fewer and fewer publishers asking for physical uh, mailed manuscripts, though. Yeah. Uh, the very yeah. few that still do, I just kind of see that and I go, really? God, the shipping on that. Like, I don't want to... <laughs> Well, it cost, yeah, it cost a fortune. I mean, it really did. It cost a fortune. But because it was a mid-list, there was still the possibility of breaking in. Then you had, I mean, the one of the things that really made things happen was Andy Offit with Swords Against Darkness. I'm trying to think. I think Dick was, I think Dick had a Simon of Gittes story in the very first Swords Against Darkness. So that tells me that either he knew how to contact Andy. You know, I'm sure Kirby knew Andy. Andy had been president of the Science Fiction Writers of America. But, yeah, so what happened was that David Madison had sent 
I don't know if you've heard of the stories, the Marcus and Diana stories. No, I'm afraid I haven't. He had done for space and time. Talk about breaking the rules. Jessica Salmons would love these stories, and, and for a good reason. They were kind of like Fafford and the Grey Mouser. That's the way to describe it in the book I'm writing. But Diana was the larger of the two. Okay? And she was a swordswoman and all this stuff. I suppose kind of like, was it the Brianna character in Game of Thrones? When- yeah, Brianna Tarth, yeah. That's it, that's it, that's it. And Marcus was more diminutive, and he was good with a sword and everything. And they were lovers, and they were companions on the road and everything. But it kind of like took that big tough guy thing with the diminutive little sweet princess thing and turned it on its head. So that was novel. So he'd sent that to Andy off, and Andy went, yeah, I, I like this. So that led Andy to discover Space and Time magazine. Ordered a stack of them, read them all. And found, I think, a couple of stories, not just mine, but maybe a couple of others that he liked. And so he plucked one of mine out to put into Swords Against Darkness 3. So one of my stories was in there. So the pros were aware to some degree of what the fans were writing in this little second wave here. The fans were writing for the fanzines. There were some writers who were doing things for publishers like Tarnsman of War. And Cavan's world and stuff. And whatever you thought of them, you know, they were there. And that was pretty much sword and sorcery. It had teeth in it. You know, I mean, it was sword and sorcery, truly. So that's what it felt like. At the time, it was kind of amorphous. Mm. When you look back, you can say, oh, I can see some outlines to this. And it does seem a little, a little fluid. There was a way of moving up and getting the attention of paperback publishers. You didn't just have to stay in the fanzines. Well, thank you so much for giving us uh, some insight from someone who experienced it. Because let's say looking back as an author trying to get published now, you just kind of see a bit a shape of it and you hear broad stories, but it's yeah, it's obviously not the same thing as having been there. Uh, if I can ask you a hyper specific question about that period, sure. uh, maybe a little later this might have been. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, word on the street, as a friend of mine wanted me to phrase it. <laughs> <laughs> Word on the street is, by which I mean a friend of mine who's also a Carl Edward Wagner scholar. I I, I mentioned to him I was going to Oh, be, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mentioned to him I was going to be uh, speaking with you. And this uh, KEW scholar buddy, he sent me the following message when I mentioned I was going to be talking with you. He mm-hmm. said, I don't know for a fact, but I'm, my friend, pretty sure I heard Smith was hired to jump in and write the Bran Mac Morn book, Carl Never Finished, which in the mist. Is there any truth to that? Quasi-truth, quasi-truth. <laughs> yeah, what happened was that we didn't finish the novel that Carl never did, meaning Dick Tierney and I. So we were hired to write another Brand McMoran novel. Carl's book was Queen of the Night. Oh, okay. And there's even a cover for it you can find online. They, they printed a cover for it. And he either never wrote it or never completed it, being Carl. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Zebra, Kirby had shown... Uh, the manuscript of Oron to Roberta Grossman at Zebra Books. And I assume she read it, or maybe Roy Torgerson was there by that time. I'm not sure if Roy was there yet or not. He was the editor I worked with a little while later at at Zebra. So she knew I could write Mm -hmm. reasonably well, and I could write Robert E. Howard type stuff. So Carl, by that time, he wasn't coming through with his Grand McMorn novel. And so Kirby said, would you write a Bram McMorn novel for us? And I said, man, I'd, I'd love to. You know, I'd really love to. And so I wrote the first chapter and the outline for a book that I called For the Witch of Mists, without the the mists in there. 
And mm -hmm. I realized only years later that there had been a Conan story that Lynn Carter and Inspector DeCamp had written for Fantastic called The Queen of the Mists or something like that. I had, oh, no. I had forgotten that story or just seen it on the newsstand, and, and I ended up borrowing that title. So I apologize to them, you know, much later here now. So I submitted that, and they didn't decline it, but Kirby got hold of me and said, Never mind about that story. Looks like Carl's going to write the book after all. Okay. Could you write us a pirate story? So he sent me the Don Grant book of Terrence Volme stories. So I read that. I love pirate stories. He doesn't like pirate stories. So I said, man, it's my chance to write a pirate story. So I kind of ignored what Howard had done. I kind of wrote the pirate story I wanted to write, which nobody complained about. It. It's mm. not like Black Volme was a really well-known Howard character, and we were all having fun anyway. So I wrote Witch of the Indies. And sent that in, and that was accepted. And so then that ended up being my first public book in early 78. Okay. Then I heard back from Kirby, and he said, now they want you to go ahead and write the Brand McMorrin novel. I'd like you to write it with Dick. You Can you and Dick write it? And I was like, okay, I don't care. That'd be fine. I, I met Dick. I liked it, you know. So we used the outline that I wrote, and that's what we based that novel on. It was not based on what Carl had come up with at all it was our own oh okay okay my idea was to have have like grand mcmoran like king kong taken in chains to the big city to fight in the arena uh that idea came from me thank god kirby got dick to co-author it because i'm not a historian of ancient roman history dick is very much so i got a lot of things wrong when i wrote my first draft and dick cl cleared up all of that stuff so all of the roman stuff in there is from him and, and he really shaped it you know well to feel like you're back there in rome so but yeah i hope that clarifies it it absolutely does when carl heard that i was going to write a brand mcmoran novel he seemed to have been very kind about it. i actually got a letter from him oh. and he said congrats good luck writing the brand novel you know you're a good choice or whatever so he knew who i was and he enclosed a little an essay he'd written about brand his brand of breakfast cereal or something and, and you know the research he'd done on the brand mcmoran character so it was very kind of him to do that it's the only time we ever communicated i never met him but that was very nice of him to have done that so there wasn't any animosity or anything but we didn't we didn't complete the novel okay cool well, well thank you so much for that uh, story i really appreciate it and i have sure. no doubt uh, my friend the uh, sure. carl scholar will also appreciate it mm -hmm. and hopefully some other people listening <laughs> No, I suspect yeah, I'm sure, sure they will. No, it's, it's an interesting period in history because, you know, the farther back it goes and the more you look back at it, it does take a kind of shape like anything in the past. Yeah. And you can kind of see stuff there that you didn't notice when you were there. David C. Smith interview part one ends here. <laughs> I really hope you'll join us in only one week's time, not the usual two, for part two, in which we start with David's take on the collapse of sword and sorcery in the 80s and move on all the way through to what he's up to today. So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns, and is hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to submit a question, then please email it to soimwritinganovel at gmail.com. You can also holler at the show on Twitter. Look for at so underscore writing. That's at so writing. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to soimwritinganovel.com slash support the show which has things like links to our Patreon, coffee, PayPal, all that stuff. Thanks for hanging out with me and David, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>